0: Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with a growing reaction to the trove of internal documents the former Facebook employee-turned-whistleblower Francis Haugen turned over to the Wall Street Journal, the SEC and the Congress, which are now being analysed by the press and the British Parliament, before which Haugen will testify on Monday. Joining us is Lawrence Lessig, Professor of Law and Leadership at Harvard Law School and the host of the podcast, Another Way, founder of EqualCitizens.us and co-founder of Creative Commons. He clerked for Judge Richard Posner on the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals and Justice Antonin Scalia on the United States Supreme Court and is the author of Republic Lost, How Money Corrupts Our Congress and A Plan to Stop It, One Way Forward, The Outsider's Guide to Fixing the Republic and They Don't Represent Us, Reclaiming Our Democracy. We will discuss the clear case emerging that Facebook's controlling owner, Mark Zuckerberg, along with his mentor, Peter Thiel, put the company's growth and profits ahead of public safety, and in response to complaints from the right that they have a liberal bias, they have given the right free reign, allowing extremism to flourish, breathing life into the stop the steal" lie, which culminated with the January 6th insurrection." Facebook's own research shows how a 2019 test account set up in the fake name of Carol Smith, a 41-year-old conservative woman in North Carolina, had the Facebook algorithm delivering QAnon content to her in two days and within weeks the 3% militia movement who stormed the Capitol were radicalizing her. Then we will speak with Lincoln A. Mitchell, a professor of political science at Columbia University, where he also serves as an associate scholar in the Salzman Institute of War and Peace Studies. The author of numerous books on the former Soviet states, baseball and democracy, he has an article at CNN Doing right isn't the secret to the Democrats' success next year, and we will discuss how delivering on Biden's policy promises is not necessarily the key to victory for the Democrats in the midterms. Then finally, with the Supreme Court again refusing to block the extreme Texas abortion law, we will speak with Carol Sanger, a professor of law at Columbia Law School, where she teaches courses on reproductive rights, family law, the legal profession, and law and gender. Her latest book is about abortion, terminating pregnancy in the 21st century, and we'll discuss how the court will hear arguments on the case on November the 1st, then on another abortion case on December the 1st, but a ruling will not come until late next year, so the women of Texas will continue to have their constitutional rights denied. And before we go to our first guest, while Background Briefing remains a nationally syndicated radio program with a growing national and international audience, we are relying more and more on our online and podcast audience to sustain us for as little as $5 a month to keep this program alive during the critical years ahead in which the fate of American democracy will be decided. For those of you who can... Help us keep delivering a daily briefing so those not in a position to contribute at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate can also join in the fight against disinformation, whether it comes from Mar-a-Lago or Moscow. We must win the political warfare battles underway and fight with weaponized facts to save our democracy as we create a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Lawrence Lessig, Professor of Law and Leadership at Harvard Law School and the host of the podcast Another Way and the founder of EqualCitizen.us and co-founder of the Creative Commons. He clerked for Judge Richard Posner of the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals and Justice Antonin Scalia on the United States Supreme Court and has received numerous awards, including the Webby Lifetime Achievement Award, the Free Software Foundation's Freedom Award and FastCast50 Award, and he was named one of Scientific America's Top 50 Visionaries. And he's the author of Republic Lost How Money Corrupts Our Congress and A Plan to Stop It, One Way Forward The Outsider's Guide to Fixing the Republic, and They Don't Represent Us, Reclaiming Our Democracy. Welcome to Background Briefing, Lawrence Lessig.
1: Great to be back, Ian. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, thanks for joining us, Lawrence. And Facebook is now in the spotlight again. The original whistleblower, Frances Haugen, she initially. Gave the material to, well, she gave it to the Wall Street Journal, it's also to the Securities and Exchange Commission. It's been widely available. Apparently, there's another uh, whistleblower now providing information. But essentially, what we're learning now is that Facebook's role in helping facilitate both the Stop the Steal movement, which culminated in the insurrection on the Capitol on January the 6th, is pretty damning, is it not? I mean, I don't know that they can spin their way out of this one. What do you think?
1: I think you're right. I mean, let's be clear. So Frances gathered a bunch of material um, and she's turned this over to prosecutors, SEC, Congress, and Congress has now made these available to um, an extraordinary range of uh, journalists um, who are working through them. And starting on the 25th, will begin to produce a, a wide range of uh, articles about what the Facebook files tell us. And what they tell us is uh, really what many have suspected, but we hadn't had the data to confirm. And and that is that Facebook knows that the way it's architected its algorithms brings out the worst in us. Uh, and rather than tamping that down or changing the algorithms in ways that their own engineers recommend that they be changed in order to stop bringing out the worst of us, they decided that it was more important to make the most money they possibly can. So it is a tobacco company's trade-off. Like, do we choose to make this safer uh, and make less money, or do we make it so that we can make the most money we can, regardless of the consequence to society?
0: But is there a further dimension here in the sense that Peter Thiel is a very powerful figure, the biggest shareholder short of Zuckerberg himself and apparently something of a mentor of, of Zuckerberg's along with Rupert Murdoch, I believe as well, that he has inordinate influence and his sort of rabid libertarian views, he's supporting some of the most noxious stop-the-steel type Senate candidates at the moment is they were alarmed by what was happening with Stop the Steal and by, and with the assault on the Capitol. But imme- immediately after the, the insurrection was over, they they then got rid of the extra controls they put in. And the whistleblowers are hinting that this was because of shareholders and concerns that they didn't want to upset Donald Trump. Well, I imagine that's code for Peter Thiel, is it not?
1: Well, you know, I don't know that the Facebook files... Where the documents themselves um, can help us determine whether it was a particular political desire of a supporter of Donald Trump, for example, um, or a much more general financial objective, which is to maximize the amount of revenue that Facebook is earning. I mean, what's striking about these documents is that they reveal that the you know uh, frontline engineers inside of Facebook uh, almost uniformly are incredibly decent, honest people trying to make the system work in the safest way possible. And they are proposing changes, they're proposing ways to architect uh, the system, they're proposing algorithms that would make the system much less likely to lead to events like uh, January 6th. And constantly from the top, the public policy uh, unit intervenes to force them to change their engineering driven decisions, uh, force them to do things which everybody knows will make the platform less safe. Um, now why they public policy people do this, I think, is probably a very complicated psychology. You know, I think that um, the right uh, played uh, Facebook like a fiddle, because they were so good at making Facebook paranoid about whether Facebook would be perceived to be biased against conservatives, that they turned Facebook into a platform that was biased in favor of conservatives. The Facebook files reveal that again and again, conservative publications were called out for repeat violations of the rules Facebook had had imposed. A number of times they had been kicked off because of their repeat violation of the facebook rules and then the public policy unit would step in and reverse the decision to kick one of these publications off and as the facebook files describe always that reversal happened in the context of conservative publications never in the context of liberal publications so i don't know that that's necessarily peter Thiel and his very powerful hands inside of the organization I think it's just an organization that became incredibly politically sensitive and therefore could be manipulated by these political actors to make sure that the platform continued to fuel what they knew, they knew it needed to fuel, which was the outrage around the completely false belief that this election, this last election, was stolen.
0: Well, you can go back though, to 2016 when... Facebook had human curators when they're curating the news, and we know that, what, two-thirds or three-quarters of Americans get their news from Facebook. And the right wing and Fox and others complained exactly the way that you're describing. And then Facebook rolled over under pressure from the right, who are very clever at moving the goalposts by bringing up this myth and this canard about the liberal media and everybody on the, you know, all the the media then caves in and then moves the goalpost. And in this case, they got rid of human curation of the news and brought in these algorithms, and that led to Cambridge Analytica's abuse.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. Um, and and I think that it's important to, let's isolate two different accounts here, and let's give them names, because I think understanding which it is is, is incredibly important. So the one account we might call the politically motivated account, um, and this is imagining, you know, Self-interested or um, uh, are interested parties for political purposes intervening to bend things one way versus the other. The second account, I think, is actually much more uh, fundamental and much more dangerous. And we could call that the business model account. And the business model account says, "Look, they're just trying to make the most money they possibly can, and so they're just they're just changing algorithms or or evolving algorithms." in a way that make them the most money. And it just turns out, too bad for us as humans, but it turns out that we humans respond more, engage more, the more they play the politics of hate, the more they turn us into citizens who hate people from the other side, who are outraged and ill-informed. The more they turn us into these crazies, the more money they make. And so the, the, the reason that I think that's actually a much more dangerous reality is that it is a reality that goes to the very business model of the platform, like the choice to fix that is a choice to give up billions of dollars in profit, and you know it's hard to imagine them giving up billions of dollars in profit. And the reason I actually fear this is this is um, what is true, is one of the lead um, executives, Bosworth, inside of um, Facebook in 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 2019 wrote an incredible. Memo about Facebook and what it had learned um, over the past number of years. And he, at the end of this memo, points to a really extraordinary book um, called Salt, Fat, and Sugar by Michael Moss. And that tells the story of the processed food industry. And it tells the story of executives in processed food companies like Kraft who wake up to the fact that their food is poisoning the world, um, you know, not literally, but. But, you know, effectively, because it's so bad for the human body, that food. And these executives decide that they're going to try to make healthier food. So they begin to produce healthier processed food. And, of course, the market hates it. And very quickly, these executives are removed and the company goes back to its old ways. And what Bosworth was doing in the memo was basically suggesting that's the same thing with Facebook. You know, Facebook could take steps to minimize its profit or reduce its profit to make the product that it's offering safer but in the long run it can't do that because it's facing competitors um, whether that's TikTok or whatever new competitors out there that would then be grabbing attention away from facebook or instagram so bosworth's basic point was you know we can't do anything about this the business model drives us to making this the most poisonous platform we can because that turns out to be the most profitable for us too bad for the world but good for us. Um, uh, And, and, you know, that actually came out in one of the extraordinary quotes in the, in the second whistleblowers um, account where, you know, one of the executives, I don't remember the name of the executive, but the executive basically said in response to the Cambridge Analytica problem, you know, there'll be journalists. They were pissing about this for a couple of days, but then quickly Congress will forget it. And we will be printing money in the basement. And that's all we have to worry about. And that's the point. They understand this is a technique to make them money, They don't care that it destroys democracy or destroys people or, like, leads, you know, young teens to want to commit suicide because their algorithm has fed them body dysmorphic, um, dysphoric uh, images. They're just a company trying to make money, and we need to come to terms with that reality.
0: Well, around the world, though, as bad as it is here in this context of these new revelations about what happened prior to the insurrection – Also, they're apparently fueling this genocidal strife inside of uh, Ethiopia. Facebook is the platform which these hate groups are used. And in India, where you have a Hindu nationalist as the prime minister and Modi, they're also fueling racial strife between Hindus and Muslims. But I thought the most telling thing, uh, Lawrence, was... This 2019 study entitled Carol's Journey to QAnon, yeah. which was a test user studies of misinformation, polarization risks encountered through recommendation systems. That's the full title. And they did a test account. They made up a woman, a 41-year-old North Carolina woman, Carol Smith. They gave her a fake name. and Her bio says that she likes Fox News and follows humor groups that mock liberals and embrace Christianity and was a fan of Melania Trump's. And then within two days, the Facebook algorithm was recommending QAnon link groups, and in within two weeks, she was getting solicitations from the Three Percenters, the militant yep. group that was a part of the storming of the Capitol.
1: Yeah. Now, you know, this this story, the kind of rabbit hole story about these platforms, is something that, you know, research has been talking about for many years. Rene Resta at... Uh, at Stanford in 2015 was describing experiments which she had conducted, which produced basically this. The Wall Street Journal, before they started publishing the Wall Street Journal, the Facebook files, um, uh, published an extraordinary video that summarized research that had been done about TikTok, where it's the same thing. You create these profile. They created these, you know, thousands of these profiles that were. Um, you know, standard profiles of regular people. And then within hours, uh, TikTok would drive them into these rabbit holes of destructive, harmful content. And so what what we're learning now is not that this dynamic is possible or that um, it might actually be happening, but that Facebook itself produced exactly these experiments and saw that this is exactly what their platform was doing. And, and this is when, you know, people say, well, look, if Americans are extremists, then Facebook is just a mirror on our extremism. But that's missing the point. It's not that it was a mirror for this woman, this mother, uh, or this, you know, this fake account. It's not that it was just reflecting back the fact that she liked Fox News and liked to make fun of liberals. It was that it was transforming her into someone who was even more extreme by feeding her more and more content that would make her, that would drive her down the rabbit hole into the extreme, extreme position. The same thing with, you know, the stories about uh, teens um, on, on Instagram and the body dysphoria, which, um, you know, un- unfortunately many young teens uh, face. Of course, there's a certain percentage that face that. Um, when, when the platform encounters this reality, what it does is feed these teens more body dysphoric images. Why? Because that drives them to consume the platform more. And the more they consume it, the more extreme they become in their pathology. And some obviously lead to the ultimate step of taking their life because of the way they've been driven to view themselves because the platform has chosen to amplify those images in a way that they, the platform knows will, will will addict them even more, but you know, anybody else realizes will make them even more sick. So this dynamic is the critical Dynamic for us to understand. When people say this is a question of free speech, it's not a question of free speech. It's the question of the right of the platform to amplify some content and suppress other content, even though it realizes that amplification is producing extraordinary harm at the individual level and at the social level.
0: Well, just in closing, there, Lawrence Lessig, whether or not Teal is the sort of the, the sort of dark whisperer here or not in Zuckerberg's ear. Francis Haugen recommends that, Francis Haugen makes it clear that as long as Zuckerberg's in charge and has the majority shares, it's not going to change. She's, she's identifying him as a problem. And does that mean that there has to be some kind of move to break up that kind of monopoly power in terms of Zuckerberg's hold, if, if Haugen is right, that he is a part of the problem?
1: Well, I think he's ultimately responsible for the problem. You know, the, the buck stops here. I mean, it's a trillion dollar company. The trillion dollar buck stops with uh, Zuckerberg. But we should realize one really extraordinary fact about this story that um, I think too often people miss. Mark Zuckerberg is unique in the history of global capitalism. Um, you know, this is a publicly traded company which touches the lives of three billion people every month. Um, It has a trillion-dollar capitalization or bouncing around a trillion dollars. And Mark Zuckerberg has a controlling ownership of uh, voting shares in that company, which means no combination of shareholders can reverse him and his decisions. Now, that's unprecedented. We've never seen with a public company this big, this powerful, a single person exercising this kind of power. And so I think one really important question beyond the question of whether Facebook should be broken up, which is a really complicated question that, you know, I don't think there's an easy answer to that question. But one simple point should be that corporate law should not permit this amount of power to be concentrated in a single person, however cute or good or goodwilled or liberal or conservative that person might be, whether you like the person or not, that's not the point absolute power corrupts absolute p- uh, power corrupts absolute power corrupts absolutely and i think that in so many of these facebook files you see evidence of the companies you know presenting to management the engineers presenting to management good ideas for how to make the platform safer and time after time you see management telling the engineers no and often the management identified is zuckerberg so zuckerberg himself Is facing this choice do I make my platform safer do I make it less likely to cause genocide around the world do I make it less likely to cause girls to commit suicide because of what we feed them or more likely to do all those things because that will lead to more profits and again and again the choice is more profits and that fact is fundamental to understanding what the problem here is you can't concentrate so much power in a single person And so if there's a single change Facebook could make tomorrow or the law could make tomorrow, it is to divest him of that power and allow the company to be governed in the way any major publicly traded company is by a board of directors who has in view not just the single question of how much money am I going to have at the end of the day, but how do you operate as a global citizen with the most important free speech platform humanity has ever seen?
0: Lawrence Lessig, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Lawrence Lessig, Professor of Law and Leadership at Harvard Law School and the host of the podcast, Another Way, and the founder of EqualCitizen.us and the co-founder of the Creative Commons. He clerked for Judge Richard Posner of the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals and Justice Anthony Scalia on the United States Supreme Court. And he's the author of Republic Lost, How Money Corrupts Our Congress and A Plan to Stop It, One Way Forward, The Outsider's Guide to Fixing the Republic and They Don't Represent Us, Reclaiming Our Democracy. We can take a brief station break. We're back looking into how delivering on Biden's policy promises is not necessarily the key to victory for the Democrats in the midterms. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Lincoln Mitchell, a professor of political science at Columbia University, where he also serves as an associate scholar in the Saltzman Institute of War and Peace Studies, the author of numerous books on the former Soviet states, baseball and democracy. He has an article at CNN, Doing Right Isn't the Secret to Democrats' Success Next Year. Welcome to Background Briefing, Lincoln Mitchell.
2: Thank you for having me back, Ian. Always good to be here.
0: Well, thanks, uh, Lincoln. And last week, President Biden had a town hall meeting at which he talked about he he's open to the idea of either a talking filibuster or altering the filibuster in some way. And obviously, he came into office promising to deal with the four crises of coronavirus, climate, economy, and racial justice. And he's sort of floundering now. He's He's tanking in the polls, largely because I think the American people expect decisiveness from their leaders, and uh, when you have the trifecta, when you control the House, Senate and the White House, you're expected to get something done, but two senators are causing this situation where the Democrats are sort of dithering, and how much do you think they're paying the price of the obstruction from Cinema and Mansion?
2: Well, they're paying a big price here, but the price is really about the policy, not the politics. They will end up at a reconciliation bill that will be much closer to $2 trillion than the $6 trillion that Biden initially proposed and the $3.5 trillion that they had landed as a compromise during the summer. And that was really the heart and soul of his domestic agenda, that and the $1.5 trillion infrastructure bill, hard infrastructure bill. But I don't know that this will cost them the midterm elections in large part because I don't think they're going to win the midterm elections anyway and, and you're, at least with regards to the House of Representatives, I think they will hold the Senate, but your analysis, that is kind of, it's, it's, not, it's not that it's inaccurate because it is accurate, but that is the 11 month of every first term president, you know, with the exception of Donald Trump because of it was also with the whole, the whole authoritarianism and just the, the instability that he brought. But this is the time when a president begins to struggle. Most presidents do poorly in their first midterm and most presidents bounce back and get reelected because there's that's the, the process of American politics. And passing this bill, while it's important for all kinds of reasons, not least of which is solving those problems or beginning to solve those problems, it's not the secret bullet that guarantees the Democrats' success in, in November of 2022.
0: But if they lose the House in 2022, Biden's not going to get a lot done up until 2024.
2: That, absolutely not. And if they win the House in 2022, Biden's still not going to get a get a lot done up until 2024. You have a two year window uh, to legislate and almost every major piece of domestic legislation going since the New Deal has occurred in the first two years of a president's term in office. And it's important that if the Democrats narrowly lose control of the House, which is probably the most likely outcome, we should be careful about reading that too heavily as a dramatic democratic defeat. It would be potentially very terrible for the country, but it would not be it would it's kind of the normal pattern of things I and mean, what we should be careful about reading every hiccup of, of of the polls as some kind of dramatic change when we have decades of history to look at to tell us something different.
0: Well, one of the things that history tells us though is that presidents who want to get a lot done quite often defeat themselves because you really need to focus on two or three really achievable things. and when you've got such big ambitions, first of all, you've got this raging coronavirus pandemic which Frankly, I think that that is, uh, that is what the American people want to be solved most of all. And then, of course, as I mentioned, you've got climate change and uh, the economy and racial justice. So all heavy lifts.
2: Absolutely heavy lifts. And one one could argue that really what Biden should have done is focus on one of these things. But we're not in a position where we're a, a rational, forward-thinking president can only focus on one of these things. The spread of the Delta variant, which at this point is a phenomenon that arises out of republican policies rather than out of a biological or health issue right this is a solvable problem we have a pandemic raging in unvaccinated america because the republican party has decided that it's good politics to fight vaccinations not because we can't solve the problem so that is a political problem climate change obviously is something that you can't ignore so to some extent biden is overwhelmed by the problems as any president would be and and that seems to be his challenge and the, the presidents have a dilemma, which is if you think small and don't try to do much, then, then you go to the midterm elections and someone says – and people say you're not doing much. If you think big, you end up pushing some voters away, and that's what happened to the Democrats in 66, to the Republicans in 82, to the to the Repu- to Democrats in 2010. That's what happens when you pass big legislation. It's very hard to think of times in American history where major domestic legislation has been approved that has made a president or the president's party more popular in the short run.
0: And again, I'm speaking with Lincoln Mitchell, who's a professor of political science at Columbia University, where he also serves as associate scholar in the Saltzman Institute of War and Peace Studies, the author of numerous books on the former Soviet states, baseball and democracy. He has an article at CNN, Doing Right Isn't the Secret to Democrat Success Next Year. But if you compare what's happening now to what happened to Obama, when again, he had the trifecta obviously with a bigger margin in the House and Senate. And he only, you know, he concentrated on the Affordable Care Act. A lot of stuff didn't get done. But more than that, he was waiting around for the Republicans to join in a bipartisan effort, which he really was invested in, at least he campaigned on. And that was never going to happen because Mitch McConnell, on the very day of his inauguration, met with Newt Gingrich and others to plot the fact that he wanted Obama to be a one-term president. So you've got this mechanism of obstruction that's there with the Republican Party being so adamant and holding that 60-vote threshold. And for some reason, rather, both Manchin and Cinema say that that's an instrument of bipartisanship when, in fact, it's an instrument of gridlock. So my sense is, is that Obama had problems with his own, I recall, particularly the senator from... Um, Nebraska, who was a former insurance executive, he really frustrated the progress of the Affordable Care Act and dragged it out. And it's pretty much similar to what's happening now, this kind of, you know, twisting in the wind situation. But obviously, it's a lot worse now with cinema and mansion. And they're not going to, they're not saying I'm doing it mansion because I own a coal company or in the case of cinema, I'm not doing it because I'm getting a lot of money from big farmer and other wealthy interests. They talk about inflation and other lofty things like fiscal responsibility. So is this system rigged against progressive change in the sense that all you have to do if you're the kind of reactionary establishment is peel off a couple of Democrats, particularly when you've got a 50-50 split in the
2: Senate? Well, I would make three points. The first is that there is an asymmetry of approach to governance. Remember, the Republican Party doesn't want to govern. They want to troll, they want to kibitz, they don't want to solve problems. So it always makes the democratic, the challenge greater for the democratic party. This is why, by the way, the filibuster is a more valuable tool for the Republicans. Because if you get rid of the filibuster, the Republicans will not use it to steamroll legislation because they know their legislation is unpopular. It's popular with their base, but not popular nationally. Your question, is the system rigged against progressives? The short answer to that is yes. The longer answer is it's just fundamentally not democratic. And all of these things that are supposed to be checks on the majority are essentially checks on democracy. So for example, that you can win control of both houses of the legislature, win the presidency with substantial margins in the popular vote and still the Republican party can stop it through the filibuster. That is fundamentally anti-democratic, but the filibuster is a rule. It's not in the constitution and it can be easily disposed of. And the fact that Manchin and cinema don't wanna do that is a lot of what you're saying. They are hiding behind this kind of shimmer of bipartisanship and integrity and working together when really they are, just, they are just putting the interest of their donors and their egos above that of their party, their country and not least their constituents. The other piece of this that we should always, always remember is that the US Senate is fundamentally an undemocratic organization. It does not represent voters equally. It is not based on the principle of one person, one vote. And the United States Supreme Court has ruled over and over that similar structures, which give representation to, to counties rather than to into people in state and other legislatures are unconstitu- unconstitutional because they're undemocratic. So the problem here is structural. The problem here is the US Senate and the filibuster is really only a subset of that problem. Now me, I would like to get rid of the filibuster, but if I really wanted to make America democratic, I would either get rid of the Senate or turn it into an institution that one way or another is based on one person, one vote.
0: Well, Biden seems to be coming around slightly in that direction. At the town hall, I think it was on Friday, on CNN, he said he was in favor of of the talking filibuster. And just to quote him, I propose we bring that back now immediately But I also think we're going to have to move to the point where we fundamentally alter the filibuster. So do you think that something's going to happen? I mean, obviously, the fact that the Republicans just blocked Manchin's own bill on voting rights and they're blocking bipartisan efforts on police reform, immigration reform, expanded background checks for firearms, etc. I mean, it's just obvious that nothing is getting done. So, is there a shift underway? Is there any way do you think to get a carve out for at least for voting rights so that mansion can and cinema again, can get off the dime?
2: again to to highlight a couple of points, the filibuster is not is just a rule, right? And because of that, you can bring it in or out in different gradations. So you could pass a rule that's saying for this bill, there's no filibuster, right? Or for bills having to do with voting, there's no filibuster. So there's easy, easy ways to get around it. But the other point is that you still need fifty votes in the Senate to get rid of the filibuster, permanently, to alter it or to get rid of it for a bill here and there. And that fifty votes, because then Kamala Harris as VP could cast the fifty first, that f- vote still come down to Manchin and Cinema. So the mantra here is always Manchin and Cinema. And Manchin and Cinema are different. We we link them together. But Manchin is basically a very conservative Democrat in a state that it's kind of extraordinary that a Democrat can win, can get elected to the US Senate and is a conservative guy but to me there's a negotiation there he's got a number in mind he's got a policy in mind cinema has not as has not really articulated what it is she wants and that actually makes it more difficult to get somewhere with her we don't know what she wants to to get rid of the filibuster we don't know what she needs to sign on to the budget reconciliation bill and that makes it very difficult because unless if joe biden wants to get rid of the filibuster as he should then he needs to be able to go to Kirsten Cinema and be able to go Manchin, to Joe Manchin and negotiate with them to, to get them to vote to get rid of the filibuster because he doesn't have a say in this other than the power of the bully pulpit as, as president.
0: Well, we're going to have another example of Republican obstruction uh, with the filibuster threshold of 60 before you can even have a debate. I mean, that's the folly of this, of Cinema's argument that you need the filibuster to bring about bipartisanship. If you can't even have a debate Unless you get sixty votes, how could you ever th- describe that as encouraging bipartisanship? But the John Lewis voting bill comes up on the floor of the Senate next week, so we'll see what happens there. But the problem I have with both Mansion and Cinema is, first of all, in the case of Mansion, Mother Jones is reporting that he's told his Mansion's told his confidants that he's thinking of running as an American Independent. So he's got a lot of leverage. Um, he could either, one, walk walk across the aisle, and that's the end of... Uh, you got Mitch McConnell back in control of the Senate. And to some extent, similar situation with Sinema, who's getting all kinds of uh, money from big corporate donors because, after all, she's... And Biden, by the way, mentioned this in, in his town hall. She's basically stopping any repeal of the Trump tax cuts any raising of the taxes on the super wealthy in this country and raising corporate taxes. So my God, is she going to get rewarded by corporate American by the billionaires in this country? She'll have a huge war chest in 2024 to run as an independent, won't she?
2: Well, she will have a huge war chest to run as an independent if she chooses to. She would lose to a Democrat in that election in Arizona, without a doubt. She is, if, if you're Kirsten Sinema, the, the smart move here is to cash out because she is burning her electoral bridges here. Arizona is a purple state that's trending blue. Manchin, you're absolutely right about him having the leverage, right? It is, Manchin is one phone call away from being chair of the energy committee and making Mitch McConnell the Senate majority leader and Chuck Schumer and Joe Biden know that. And that's what makes it so difficult. But, but fundamentally we have to ask another question, which is why does the opinion of Alex Padilla and Joe Manchin, why is that weighed equally in the U.S. Senate? Why are we, you know, there are 10 senators from Montana, Wyoming, the Dakotas, Nebraska, combined have much less population, have roughly the population of Brooklyn, right? This is the system and this is not democracy. And more and more Americans are aware of that. And people who hide like cowards behind this idea of bipartisanship, right? When really what they are saying is that I'm committed to a system that isn't democratic. Why should a party that gets a minority of the votes in every election, not be able to stop something every now and then, but bring absolutely everything to a halt and the reason for that is that the system fundamentally is a democratic, a base idea of democracy is one person, one vote, and the Senate doesn't reflect that. And it is getting harder and harder to conceal or overcome that.
0: Right. And of course, if you control the Senate through the tyranny of the minority, you also end up controlling the courts, which we've seen happen.
2: But- and, and increasingly, it will take fewer votes to control the Senate, particularly if there's a filibuster. If you do the math, you can get to 40 votes from the small states, the small Republican states, with about a quarter of the population, giving a quarter of the population an effective veto over everything, except for, you know, a few exceptions.
0: But any kind of constitutional amendment would be onerous and takes decades. Uh, Look at the the ERA. So what are the answers there? To make Puerto Rico a state? To make Washington, D.C. a state?
2: There are no easy answers. I say this over and over. If I had easy answers, you know, I would tell them to you. To you. And it's not going to be easy to make Puerto Rico or D.C. a state, although I would support those things. But, but the problem that we have now is that the Constitution is used to stifle discussion about democracy. And as, we, as these political crises deepen, and it's not just a political crisis, right? It's not just that we can't pass legislation. It's that thousands of people every day are dying of COVID. It's that people are losing their homes because of climate change. It's because soon people will really be suffering even more because of climate change. As these problems get, get worse and as our inability to solve them keeps going back to the fundamentally undemocratic nature of our founding documents, which were written by mortal people, many of whom owned slaves, many of whom who had their own private agendas, we are going to have to wrestle with some very core questions about what the United States of America is – what our views are, and to ultimately decide that we can live according to the Constitution or we can be a democracy, but we cannot be both.
0: Well, just in closing, that's going to come into stark relief, is it not? If this voter suppression continues, if the Democrats lose in 2022, lose the House, as you suggest, First of all, they will win the House without a vote being cast because of gerrymandering and then on election day there's all kinds of voter suppression and then after that these key Republican legislatures can decide to count and certify the vote and if they don't like it they can overturn it and they've also got Steve Bannon's operation at the grassroots level of terrorizing and and intimidating poll workers. So these neutral poll workers are leaving in droves and Republican ideologues like the Cyber ninjas are running for local election boards, so the this table is being set for a one-party state here in the United States. Our very democracy is at threat. And frankly, when we talk about you know the Democrats having a sort of diffuse message and climbing too many hills at the same time, how about that, Lincoln, as as a centerpiece, the the you're survival more, of American democracy itself?
2: You're more optimistic than I am. Um, the. I mean, the United States no longer qualifies as democracy. We don't meet basic standards of that after the Trump administration. We are a country that is trying to rebuild a democratic system after a four year dalliance with authoritarianism. And the authoritarian movement is still very strong. And we don't know that in the future it will be led by a mentally incapacitated clownish uh, buffoon, right? And whose avarice out, out, outweighs his, his authoritarian impulses. That movement is very strong. We are coming into a situation where the period from November of 2024 to January, the end of January 2025 will make what happened this last year look like a Sunday school picnic. And the Republican Party is putting all of these measures in place, beginning with the voter suppression, beginning with the that you talk about state legislatures being able to turn elections, beginning with the undermining of the media including efforts to pass laws making it for uh, stripping people of their first amendment rights. This is a very dire situation. And I would just urge that we can no longer talk about we might be in a constitutional crisis. We're deep into a constitutional crisis. Our democracy is not at stake. Our democracy has been very badly damaged. And in many respects, as I've said, we don't qualify as a democracy anymore. And this is kind of, you can't say that out loud in the United States. People think I'm some kind of raving radical nut, but, but just look at the information look at what other democracies are doing. And we are not meeting those standards. And the result is that we are going to get worse policies, we are going to get deepening crises. So I I don't, I mean, as much as it's lovely to speak with you, I don't bring great optimism to this discussion.
0: Well, I prefer realism over over Pollyannaism. So I thank you for joining us, uh, Lincoln Mitchell. It's been a pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Lincoln Mitchell, who's a professor of political science at Columbia University, where he also serves as an associate scholar in the Saltzman Institute of War and Peace Studies, the author of numerous books on the former Soviet states, baseball and democracy. He has an article at CNN, Doing Right Isn't the Secret to Democrat Success Next Year. We're going to take a brief station break. we back looking into how the Supreme Court again refused to block the extreme Texas abortion law. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Carol Sanger, who's a professor of law at Columbia Law School, where she teaches courses on reproductive rights, family law, the legal profession, and law and gender. And her latest book is About Abortion, Terminating Pregnancy in the 21st Century. Welcome to Background Briefing, Carol Sanger.
3: Thank you. Thank you.
0: So the Supreme Court on Friday again allowed this Texas law, SB-8, to stand, and they have scheduled arguments for November the 1st. And of course, there's another abortion bill as well, the Mississippi law that bans abortions after 15 weeks. Oral arguments are scheduled for December the 1st. So I'm a little surprised that only Justice Sotomayor objected to this second round of Allowing this outrageous law to stand, what do you make of that?
3: Oh, um, I think that there were other objections, but this is happening so fast. I mean, her her dissent was very strong. I mean, she was really spitting tax, and she took some of the language from her previous dissent in the in the previous week. So I don't read too too much into the fact that. Uh, the other two, that the only two we could count on, um, Breyer and Kagan, didn't dissent on this, but more uh, weight or greater account of the fact that they scheduled the oral argument so quickly.
0: So and you think t- a, de- a deal was done then with the other two?
3: yeah i'm not a tea leaf reader for the supreme court because i don't think we know until they die and leave us their papers you know what really motivated it but yes that that this was this was one of the first times where you could if you wanted to see it this way as i do say that the court acknowledged that there was a very important right at stake of women to exercise this constitutional right. And one of the things about abortion in the U.S. is that the fact that it's a constitutional right also often gets um, pushed to the side or not mentioned at all. And so I thought that Sotomayor's dissent was sort of pounding the table on the issue that this is not just any behavior we're talking about. This is the exercise of a constitutional right with uh, extreme consequences if it can't be exercised. So I thought that was important and worth noting. Well, I
0: get that, Carol. I mean, if the Supreme Court doesn't stand for that, what do they stand for? Because constitutional <laughs> rights, doesn't matter what the, the issue is, any constitutional right that's being abused and denied is an absolute outrage, isn't it?
3: Well, yes, it always has been. But I think that this is less the case with abortion. There's a sort of phrase, abortion exceptionalism, which means abortion is treated differently than almost... First of all, abortion is treated differently than almost every other medical procedure and restrictions on abortion that would never be upheld. If they were up for knee surgery or colonoscopies, are are rather readily upheld in the case of abortion. For example, telemedicine, which is a, a huge benefit to rural women and in states that only have one uh, one abortion clinic, telemedicine can make a huge difference. And a number of states have now banned telemedicine in cases of abortion, the provision of abortion care so that would that's just that's unthinkable too one might think from a a medical point of view but states have passed such restrictions so abortion is treated quite differently and you would be surprised i think to see the number of cases where the fact that it's not just access to a medical procedure that's being claimed but the exercise of a constitutional right is given little shrift at all
0: Well, in terms of the anti-abortion zealots, that is their their burning issue, is it not? I mean, the fellow that wrote this law, SB8, (laughs) um, is clearly one of those kind of zealots. And he wrote it in such a way that the kind of people that stand in front of abortion clinics and intimidate young women as they try to go through this cordon of screaming people holding up pictures of fetuses, etc., that's the world from which he comes And they very transparently use this kind of vigilante tactic to get around judicial review. So, I mean, it's just staring you in the face what this is about. This is the tyranny of the minority of the minority.
3: Uh, Yeah, he's worked that Jonathan Mitchell has worked. I think for a couple of years, going around Texas, trying to build these little protective procedural mechanisms into a number of laws, and finally, and you know, it's made its big splash with the, the heartbeat bill. Um, and I would note um, we can call it the heartbeat bill, even though there is no heart. Still, it's this is just a very early developing embryo. It's not even a fetus at six weeks, and yeah, so that so. The question that the court is going to have to decide is, is Jonathan Mitchell, a sort of extremist from wherever, Texas, that's fine, uh, going to be able to throw not a wrench, but a grenade into the American legal system by permitting this procedural move that denies bringing a case in federal court? And that that's really rather this always would have been unthinkable it's like it's like some sort of party trick or what has been called a clever device but it it goes against all the principles as they say in, in, the, in the department of justice case you know about how we use law in the united states when someone takes away a constitutional right you're supposed to have a place to go and seek a remedy. And the so-called brilliance of this SB-8 is that it denies the federal courts and says, you want, you want a remedy? Go to Texas and watch what happens there. So we're, we're in a, this is a pretty dramatic moment. And actually up till now, we've, you and I have just been talking about the procedure involved in trying to get the issue, the, the substantive issue before the court. And the substantive issue is the six-week part. But what the attention is on right now is this procedural mechanism saying SB8 saying no Texas officials can enforce this law. It can only be enforced by sort of civilians, the so-called bounty hunters or vigilantes or posse from from any state in the union. And they can sue anyone connected with helping a woman get an abortion after six weeks. Which I might say, most women don't get abortions before six weeks because the embryo is so small. Doctors don't like to perform abortions at that early, early stage. And many women, as you know, don't know they're pregnant then. So this is a this is a nasty game. And one can only hope that the Supreme Court will pay attention to what the dissent has been arguing. Um, they, they've sort of jumped at this. Issue taking, they've got the Dobbs case, which is the 15 week Mississippi case, coming up in a month. And then we get this little, uh, you know, firecracker from Texas with a six week ban. And neither of those meet the rule that was set out in Roe v. Wade. That's absolutely clear. And both states agree that there is no uh, viability, fetal viability at 15 weeks. And so that's a very important substantive decision that the court has to make and which it's going which it's not going to make until the, uh, hear the arguments for until December 1st.
0: And again I'm speaking with Carol Sanger, professor of law at Columbia Law School where she teaches courses on reproductive rights, family law, the legal profession and law and gender, and her latest book is about abortion terminating pregnancy in the 21st century. Well, there's never been any sort of conservative Ideological consistency here, because Ronald yeah. Reagan used to talk about getting government off your back. Well, my yeah. <laughs> God, this is putting government in your bedroom, for God's sake! Yeah. You know, and the, and if you really cared about abortion, and nobody likes abortion, no, nobody that's ever had an abortion th- thinks it was a good thing. Uh, well, they
3: may think it was a good thing, but they don't think it was an easy decision to make.
0: Exactly. I mean, but I'm saying that the inconsistency here is that if you oppose the morning after pill or contraception itself you're just going to make abortion more likely aren't you
3: yes yes there's another where's the
0: logic there
3: oh i can't offer you logic for the anti-abortion position because one might also say how can you think that the state can't require you or your employer to get a a vaccination there's some inconsistencies with that and the willingness to burden women by saying what they can and can't do with an unwanted pregnancy. So that's part of the problem, is that logic seems to have flown out the window here. And that's why we really need the court to give a principal decision on, hopefully, that it will follow precedent, the precedent established in Roe v. Wade in 73, and then following in Casey in 1992, that says, what was the right that the court initially provided that a woman had the right to choose to terminate a pregnancy prior to viability. And removing viability leaves no standard to know when it's safe, you know, when one may have an abortion. Doctors and patients are left with no standard. And one wonders what they're going to put in, if they're going to put in a substitute standard like quickening. We can go back, you know, to the, we can go back centuries and find when quickening was the, the moment that, um, Abortion was considered; you could regulate abortion, but I doubt that they will go to quickening because quickening is up to the woman. She's the one who feels the body, you know, the fetus moving, and we don't we don't really trust women that way. You know, we think they'll lie and say there was no movement. So we really are we are really left without a standard if they take away viability. Unless they say, "Okay, Texas had a good idea. Heartbeats. We'll do it at six weeks," and that would be effectively taking away eighty-five percent of the abortions that take place in the U.S. Eighty-five percent occur in the uh, after six weeks and generally in the first trimester, so between six and twelve or fifteen weeks.
0: So, back to the sort of process of this uh, mm-hmm. SB eight uh, and. In through the courts and into the Supreme Court, obviously the initial dissent by Sotomayor was quite passionate, and it was a five-to-four decision, with John Roberts joining in with the other three liberal justices. But the block of five now, yes, uh, Supreme Court watchers are now suggesting that John Roberts is not actually in charge of the court anymore. That it yeah. yeah. that Clarence Thomas is. In, yes, I just in,
3: saw that. Yes,
0: yeah, yes. that he sort of has corralled the three Trump appointees, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett, along with Alito, and and Roberts is sort of cut off at the knees. Is, is that a possibility? Because the process has been, the, the bill gets, SB8 gets passed, and then various lawsuits happen. A district judge in Austin blocks the uh, bill, and then the Texas legislature then takes that to the Fifth Circuit in New Orleans, which is a very conservative court, right. they uphold uh, the Texas law, and then Merrick Garland and the Justice Department then weighs in. and then the decision is just made on what Friday by the Supreme Court not to uphold the Justice Department's t- decision, but rather to let this Texas law stand up until they address it on November the 1st. So that's the process, right?
3: Well, except that they probably won't make any ruling. I mean, they might on November November the 1st, but they could also keep the uh, SBA in in effect until they reach a decision on the... We don't know... There's no time frame in which they have to make a decision. So, for example, in the Mississippi case, nobody's expecting a decision until June... Um, here, because they've put it on a fast schedule, one assumes we'll get a decision you know, within a month or so. Um, but as for Clarence Thomas, you know, it, it's bewildering to think that he could be pulling the strings at the Supreme Court because he's been really such an absent figure with regard to the oral arguments, um, which he rarely participates in. Although uh, he wrote an opinion Uh, Last year in a case from an abortion case from Kentucky, which the court didn't the substance of that case doesn't really matter. But Clarence Thomas wrote he wrote a huge opinion saying that what he's waiting to get his um, hands around is the question of abortion as race, race discrimination. And th- this would really be quite something. So to think, I mean, his, his opinion was certainly read by the other justices, and they know where he is heading. And it's it's not such a healthy place for abortion law. That's a sort of a different subject, I guess. But, but what I'm saying is that, one, he never has been a big mover and shaker on the court, Two, I'm sure John Roberts is fighting for his position. I mean, he was able to hold the court in two different abortion decisions that came out um, for the providers in the last uh, four years. And it's his court so that it might be it might be chic to think of this as now turning slightly into the Thomas Court, but I, I'd give Roberts a little more credit and a little more time to see if he can pull his troops together, um, and that would be Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, not the hard, not the right. hardest core of them, not. The, sure, the but Trump these seat.
0: but these five anti-abortion justices that voted, and it's clear that that's where they really are. Yes. Um, I mean, in the case of Thomas's bizarre opinion in the Kentucky case, yeah, it's already happening to minority women that they're being denied abortions because they well, can't afford it. Now, you know, in Texas, you have to take a Greyhound bus to another state. That costs money, et cetera. This is, this is what these laws have been doing, haven't they? They've been, they've been attacking minority women who, who don't have the resources to get an abortion.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, SBA is not going to harm anybody, you know, upper middle class and probably middle class who can somehow get the money to go to Oklahoma, Louisiana, Nevada. The different these are the these are the the sort of bordering states where they've seen a huge uptick in uh, patients from Texas. So yes, this is this hits poor women and it's not just uh, black women, but the large Hispanic population in the Rio Grande area where they have the greatest distances to travel, to get out of Texas. Have you ever been to Texas? I have. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So unless you've flown, you've spent a lot of time in a car going on a straight road, you know, uh, seemingly to nowhere or to New Mexico. Then, and, and that was an excellent decision where the Supreme court, it was a few years ago where the Supreme court said, causing women to travel extremely, extraordinary distances is bad for their physical health abortion laws are justified when they are benefiting women's health and so on that very ground that some of these regulations work to the disadvantage of women who need good uh, individualized medical care you know we had that in in a case two years ago um, from texas and another case from louisiana the next year so the court is understands what what is at stake what is at stake for women here and it's um (laughs) you know it's it's old-fashioned to talk about terms like compulsory motherhood you know that sounds like a cry from early feminism, um, which I well remember, but, but we're, we're very close to it. There's just been a recent um, excellent study from um, University of California in San Francisco called the Turnaway Study, trying to figure out what happens to women who ha- are turned away from clinics because they've, they're chronologically exceeded the limit. And some travel, some become mothers. It's really such disregard for women who are making this deeply intimate familial decision, which were the very grounds that that the court saw in 73, that it should be a constitutional right. One, you know, in, in involving liberty over one's own body. It's, I must say, things feel very tense here now in the U.S. among the different abortion communities, because so very much is at stake and the procedure that we've, that the court has used to get where we're heading in, you know, weeks time to hear the uh, November 1st decision is bizarre. I mean, nothing, nothing's happening as it should have, including starting with SBA, which is, you know, really a bizarre legislative enactment that says no one in the state can enforce your right. I mean, turning the whole nation into really a vigilante, you know, trying to enforce people who help other women go to the doctor.
0: Well, Carol Sanger, I thank you very much for joining us here today.
3: Um, I've enjoyed being with you. Thank you.
0: Well, thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Carol Sanger, who's a professor of law at Columbia Law School, where she teaches courses on reproductive rights, family law, and the legal profession, and law and gender. And her latest book is About Abortion, Terminating Pregnancy in the 21st Century. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. If you missed any of today's program or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We also encourage you to rate and review us on those platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Martin Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. To help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org/donate, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for
2: now. The guy that